Pastor Henry, for those who uh, were at the ordination council. We appreciate the Lord uh, allowing Pastor Henry to be one of our shepherds. Let us continue now with scripture reading. Passage this morning is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It's the last book of the Bible, so if you want to flip to the very end, if you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, you can find the passage on page 1028, Revelation chapter 2. And as you flip there, may I remind you that the Word of God is powerful. It does not return to Him empty, and it will succeed in the purpose for which He sent it. The Word of God is active and living, discerning and judging the intents and thoughts of our hearts. Would you please rise then for this reading of God's holy and inerrant Word? Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for this word that has just been read. We are now pleading for the Spirit's help to understand your word, that it may not just inform our minds, but that it will shape our hearts, it will translate into action in the way we live from this day forth. We pray all this for your glory, for our good, and all in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who were out of town last weekend for Labor Day, you should know that we started a new sermon series that's focused on our church's uh, vision statement. Uh, We came up with a new vision statement. It was was approved last year by our membership, and uh, you can find it written for you inside your bulletin right by the order of service. Let me just restate our, our vision statement once more. It says this, HCC seeks to be an urban Chinese heritage church in central Houston that reaches all those in our lives, Chinese or otherwise, through equipping, sending, and planting. You know, for us leaders, as we were going through our vision casting process, we talked a lot about our church's identity and reputation. 
and that forced us to ask some tough questions about ourselves. What is our church's reputation? What are we known for? Now, last week, we talked about our identity as a Chinese heritage church, and we said there how that way of describing us is one way of honoring our history in the past. At the same time, it describes an important ministry in the future to the immigrant Chinese community, but also it leaves open the future, since we don't know what the future holds for ministry to the first-generation Chinese diaspora here in Houston. And so that's, that's one advantage of using this terminology, honoring the past, describing the present, leaving open the future. But if you noticed in our vision statement, we actually describe ourselves as an urban Chinese heritage church in central Houston. So this morning, this morning our focus is on the particular locale of this local church where God has situated us. And the question is, what is our reputation in the eyes of those who live, work, and play in the neighborhoods and key institutions around us? What are we known for? Now, I know some might argue that churches shouldn't care about their reputation. They shouldn't care about, what be, about being known for something. I mean, who cares what others think? We should only care about what God thinks. Well, it's definitely true that our greatest concern ought to be what God thinks. His view of us should hold the greatest sway over us. But does that mean that his opinion is the only opinion that matters? I, I agree that we should care most of all what God thinks, but only what God thinks? Because as his witnesses on earth, as God's ambassadors, the church is called to represent him. So actually, we should care what others think about us because it reflects upon the one who sent us. The church's reputation shapes how the general public views God and God's reputation, which of course is our greatest concern. So we only want a good reputation because we want others to know and to love our great God. That's why this is important. But, you know, I, I think I understand why some people bristle at the idea of, of focusing so much on our church's reputation, talking about, you know, wh what do people think about us and how does the world perceive us? I, I understand why some people have a hard time with that conversation because to them it sounds too much like a marketing strategy. I know there's a legitimate concern over using our reputation as a brand in order to market ourselves to the world. And if you're surprised that that happens, it's actually not uncommon at all. Churches do this. Come to our church. We're a teaching church. By that, they typically mean they're really into Bible study. They're really into theology, unlike some other churches. Or, or come visit us. We're a seeker-sensitive church, meaning that they're really focused on outreach and creating this warm, inviting space for, for unbelievers. Or, or join us. We're we're a family-friendly church. We're, we're a church for young adults, meaning that they're, they're targeting a specific demographic. And, and friends, hear, hear me out here. It's not, it's not wrong to care about teaching. It's not wrong to be seeker-sensitive or to be family-friendly. That's not the concern here. The concern is when churches try to position themselves over against other churches by emphasizing their uniquenesses or, or their strengths. I'd actually argue that the most prominently featured aspect of a church 
should not be what makes them stand out from others, but should actually be what they share in common with all other churches. That they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they make disciples of all nations. They make disciples who love God and who love their neighbor. You would hope, you would hope that every church would want to be most known for that. So I agree that we shouldn't talk about our reputation in the context of identifying uniquenesses, that we can then go and market ourselves and, and, and use that to convince you to drive past all these other good churches just to come to us. Friends, that is not what this conversation about our reputation is about. What this conversation is about is about being aware of where God has placed us in this city, in central Houston, near so many key institutions that draw so many people, people who need Jesus. And the question is whether lost people around us even know we exist as a church or know that we are here for them. What good is a lighthouse if ships lost at sea can't see its light? What good is a shelter in a winter storm if travelers don't even know it's there? Or don't even know its doors are actually open and that warmth and refuge are available for them inside. Do we have a reputation in our community as a place where rescue and salvation can be found? I mean, just think, for example, I truly do wonder, would all of those new neighbors and new families moving into that community of newly constructed homes right across the street, I really wonder, what do they think of us? What is our reputation in their eyes? Do they even, I mean, they know we exist. <laughs> when they drive out of their, uh, their community, they see us immediately. But do they know that we're here for them? Do they know what kind of message or ministries or community that they could find here? And you could ask the exact same question to all of those who work in the med center, to all those who, who study at, at Rice or study at UH, do they know who we are as a church? Do they know what we stand for? Do they know how they could be blessed with, with gospel and gospel community if they were to join us? Do they know that? That's why we're raising these questions, these questions of identity and reputation, because we want to be a local church that makes a gospel impact on its locale. That's the vision of our church as it pertains to where God has placed us and to the kind of reputation we hope to develop in our community. And so that, my friends, is why we are in this morning's text here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I hope you have your Bibles open and you're following along because here we find a letter, a letter written by Jesus himself to an urban church that's situated in a major city in one of the most prosperous provinces of the Roman Empire. We're talking about the city of Ephesus. It boasted a large population. It housed the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The city also had a huge seaport, and so that means that any trade or goods going to and from Asia had to go through Ephesus. That sounds, if you think about it, a whole lot like Houston in many ways. You've got a, a major city, in a prosperous state, a large population, some of the biggest houses of worship known in the world are located here in our city, and 
Of course, we've got a huge seaport that's shaping much of our economy and much of our global influence. Now, we know a lot more about Ephesus. We know that Paul, the Apostle Paul, spent three years there building up the church. By the time he left, Scripture says that he had elders in place who were there to shepherd the flock of God, and he charged them to look out for wolves, look out for false teachers who might try to creep into the flock. And Paul entrusted uh, care of this church to his trusted disciple, Timothy. Timothy was sent to go to Ephesus to help shepherd the church. And tradition tells us that the apostle John eventually pastored there in the Ephesian church. And tradition also says that Mother Mary, Jesus' own mother, was a member of the church since she was under the care of John. So this, my friends, is a church with a legacy of godly leaders. So what would Jesus have to say to this most distinguished of churches? Well, let's read verse 1 again. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is identifying who's writing this letter, which we know is Jesus. Now, some suggest that the angel that is being addressed in this letter is a reference perhaps to the preaching pastor of the church because the word angel could also be translated as messenger. So that's a possibility. It's, 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 a, it's addressed to the preaching pastor. But it's also possible that John is using that word metaphorically because a church's angel could also potentially uh, be referring to the church's ethos or its reputation. That's another option. But considering how every other use of the word angel in the book of Revelation is clearly referring to some supernatural heavenly being, I think it's safer for us just to interpret the same here. Now, of course, there's not enough just in uh, the book of Revelation to develop a full doctrine on this, but in some sense, God has assigned angels to each of his churches. And I think that's as, as, as much as we know about that, and so we shouldn't dwell too much on it, but I think that's probably it is referring to an actual angel. Now, Jesus describes himself here as holding the seven stars. And in um, uh, the end of chapter 1, we know that the seven stars there are representing those seven angels of the seven churches. And he is walking among, it says here, the seven lampstands. Again, that's representing the seven churches he's writing to. So you've got this imagery right off the bat of Jesus walking among the churches. And that implies that he is well aware of what is going on inside these churches. He is not oblivious to their current state because he is there. He is is among us. He is walking in our midst. And so when it comes to the Ephesian church, he is in a very good position to evaluate its health and its reputation. So in what follows, Jesus does three things. First, he commends the church for four things that they are known for. Second, he condemns the church for one major thing they've abandoned. And third, he charges the church to rightly respond and to recover what they lost. If you want to follow along, look in the uh, outline in your bulletin. Those are the three things Jesus are doing, and they're going to, um, to frame this message. So let's first see how Jesus commends 
the Ephesian church. He says four positive things about this church and its reputation. Look with me again at verse 2. I know your works, your toils, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Okay, so first, the Ephesians were known for their good works. Jesus says that in verse 2, that he knows their works, he knows their toil. Now, in light of verses 4 to 5, it's most likely referring to a reputation that they had for doing good works of love, good works of compassion for other people. But as we're going to see, this was a reputation more descriptive of their past than of their present. Something has been lost. Now, second, they they were known for their patient endurance. Jesus says something very similar in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, what exactly were they patiently enduring? Well, from the context, we can... You can see that they were enduring the increasing pressure brought about by the godless culture around them and false teachers within them. They were bearing, they were enduring the pressures from without from the culture and the pressures from within, within from false teachers. And that relates to the next two commendations. The third thing they were commended for is they were known for their hate of evil. Jesus says in verse 2 that he knows how they cannot bear with evildoers. And then later in verse 6, he mentions how they hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. The only other mention of this group is found later on in chapter 2 in verse 15. And that's when Jesus is addressing another church, the church in, uh, the church in Pergamum. There, the context tells us uh, and mentions things like idolatry. It mentions sexual immorality. And so it's likely that the teaching and the practices of the Nicolaitans endorsed a godless moral permissiveness, especially when it came to issues of human sexuality. Well, the Ephesians were having none of that. They were not caving in to any of those cultural pressures coming from without. They were enduring patiently. Now that leads us to the fourth thing the church was known for, their orthodoxy. They were known for their sound doctrine. Their works, their toil, their effort was primarily directed at maintaining doctrinal purity in their church. Verse 2 says that instead of bearing with false teachers, they, quote, they tested those who called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. These teachers creeping up in the church were claiming to be apostles, claiming to be those sent by God himself. But the Ephesians had a keen ability to detect false teaching, to identify false teachers. As we mentioned earlier, Paul had exhorted them to watch out for that. He exhorted them to watch out for wolves who will seek to creep in to destroy the flock from within. And it's clear that they took his warning seriously. This, my friends, was a church known for its vigilant attitude towards maintaining doctrinal purity. Decades later, 
Ignatius, an early church father, he wrote a letter to the Ephesians where he expressed encouragement over a report that he had heard about the church. He heard about how certain heretics had passed through Ephesus hoping to gain a following, but they were unsuccessful and they left, unsuccessful in gaining a hearing among any of its members. These Ephesians, they had a nose for smelling out doctrine. They had a nose for smelling out bad theology, and preserving what is good and sound, what is healthy. Well, friends, I think the same could be said of us as a church. I think we have a reputation as a church that cares about theology. I mean, some of you, on your own initiative, formed a book club to read through Calvin's Institutes. I mean, what? I, I didn't tell you to do that. You guys are wanting to read through. I haven't even read through Calvin's Institutes. You got I me. Mean, that's amazing. That only happens in a church known for its doctrine. And on top of that, our theology would be viewed as conservative in relation to many of the permissive teachings and trends regarding human sexuality that's prevalent today. I think if you, you're with us long enough and you hear us teaching and counseling, I mean, you, you, you're going to get that sense. And so like the Ephesian church, I think we're known for standing firm on sound orthodox doctrine and at the same time rejecting Nicolaitan teachings and practices that are sexually and morally permissive. Now, whether people think that's a good reputation or not is a whole other question, a whole other matter, but I think it's a fair description of us as a church. So I do see a lot of parallels between us and this first century Ephesian church. So we're talking about churches that are known for the soundness of their doctrine and their resistance to conform to the culture around them. That was their reputation here in Ephesus. But if we keep on reading in the text, we see that this church, which was known for its love of God's truth, sadly was no longer known for its love of God or of others. And that's, that's very convicting. So let's hear what Jesus has to say in verse 4, as here he shifts from commending to now condemning. And he con- condemns the Ephesian church for abandoning their first love. Verse 4 says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So this church started off in love with Jesus. Their hearts were filled with joy as they received the grace of the gospel. They knew Jesus as the one who died for their sins, who, 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 who reconciled them to God. And that love for Jesus initially translated into love and good deeds for those that were around them. They had this reputation for, for doing good deeds in the past. But at some point, They abandoned the love they had at first. Likely, it was because of all that pressure that they were enduring. Pressure coming from the outside, from the culture. Pressure coming from the inside, from false teachers. And those pressures forced the church into a more defensive posture. And they were building up for themselves a reputation as defenders of the truth. Which, of course, is good. But now... Now the Ephesians were more known for what they hate. Do you see that in the text? Jesus says, I, I, I know what, you, what, what everyone knows what you hate. 
for example, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, they're known for more for what they hate rather than for what, or, for, or better yet, for who they love. They had abandoned the love they had at first. And church, I think we need to ask ourselves some tough questions here. Have we abandoned the love that we had at first? Have we lost our love for God and for those made in God's image? Have we lost the wonder of his grace? Has the thought of Jesus dying for your sins or rising again to give you new life, has that message just grown too familiar, too boring? Have all the cultural changes and all the cultural pressures around us, has that forced us as a community into a more defensive posture so that we are becoming more known for what we are against than for who we love? Is that happening among us? Well, keep in mind the image of Jesus walking among his churches. Remember, he knows exactly what's going on, not just in, in what we do in these four walls, but he knows what's going on in our hearts. He can see right through us. He can see right through all of our, our, our sound doctrine. He can see through all of our, our biblical teaching. And he can see if at the center we're actually empty, if a deep abiding love for God and for God's people, for those who are made in God's image, if that love is conspicuously absent. He knows if we've lost our first love. And we can't hide it. We can't hide it behind a, a veil of good theology. And that is where I'm convicted. Because you could probably tell that I, I love theology. But if I'm not careful, I know I could easily end up loving the doctrine of God more than God. I can easily end up loving the doctrine of the church more than loving my church, loving the doctrine of salvation, more than loving to see lost people saved. So what about you? What about us? It's great to be known as a faithful lampstand that shines truth into a dark city, shining with conviction, shining with clarity. That's great. But remember, a lampstand's job is not just to give off light, but to give off heat as well. Light and heat. Truth and love. I mean, just go back to that example. Go back to that image of a lost traveler looking for shelter in a winter storm. He's cold. He's tired. He's disoriented. It's so dark he can't even see two steps in front of him. But suddenly, suddenly he sees before him, a shelter, a storm shelter, lit up like a beacon in the dark. And he goes over to it, but he opens up and he goes inside. But imagine if he were to walk inside that shelter to discover no fireplace, no lampstand, just a very energy-efficient LED lamp that is so energy-efficient it gives off no heat. You know, I'm sure he's going to appreciate the fact that there is some light and he's no longer in the dark, but this traveler is shivering cold, and he might freeze to death if he doesn't get warm. What he needs is not just light. He needs a fire. He needs light and heat. And friends, in the same way, the spiritually lost, those around us who don't know Jesus as their Savior, 
need churches that are on fire for God and for the gospel. They need gospel light, of course. They need the light to be able to see, but they also need gospel love to warm and to melt their cold hearts. They need churches to be full-functioning lampstands. They need church members to be well-balanced lamps that we ourselves emanate light and heat, truth and love. That's what they need. And so it makes us ask ourselves, what are we giving off? What kind of lampstand are we? Are we a church known to take a stand for the truth? If so, man, praise God, I am so glad if that is part of our reputation, that we are known to stand for the truth. But are we also known for being gracious and patient towards those with whom we disagree, those who hold to a position or to a point of doctrine that we would consider to actually be wrong and perhaps harmful? Do they still sense that we love them even in spite of our disagreement? Or are we just giving off a whole bunch of light but no heat? Lots of truth out there coming from us but no love. We have to realize, friends, that because of our urban location right here in central Houston, as we are carrying out our ministry, you have to realize that we will continue to cross paths with friends, neighbors, classmates, colleagues, all those who hold to values or viewpoints that are much more liberal than what's being taught in our church, much more permissive over you know, issues of morality or sexuality, and that's to be expected. That, that is nature, that's the nature of ministry in an urban context. The closer you get to a city center, the closer you get to a college campus, the greater the concentration of people there who are shaped by secular values. That's just the reality. And that, of course, if that is, that's our community around us, well, then that's the challenge before us. And so how are we going to respond to that? Knowing our church... I'm honestly not worried about us ever compromising our convictions. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't really foresee us ever bending to, uh, to compromise or, or bending to, to the pressures of, of the, the, the culture around us to the point that we end up changing any of our doctrine. I don't, I don't worry about that. But I am worried that we might end up patting ourselves on the back for that. I'm worried that, that, that we might settle into a self-righteous, defensive posture towards the, the culture, towards the community around us. I think we're more likely to abandon love than ever to abandon truth. And I'm afraid that we might end up losing our fire as the church, that we might end up loving to defend God's truth more than we love God or that we love people made in God's image. If that ever describes us, if that ever does fit our reputation as a church, then we deserve the same con condemnation that the Ephesian church got. But you know, thank God, thank God that Jesus never simply condemns a church and just walks away from them. No, he leaves the church with a charge to fulfill and with gospel hope to hold on to. 
And so let's see. Let's see what he says in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lamps from its place unless you repent. Now notice how Jesus charges the church in Ephesus to remember, to repent, and to recover the works they did at first. First they are to remember. To remember from where they have fallen. That means remember the heights of love that you once had with God, for God, and for others. That love that they experienced at the first, at their conversion. Remember those loving good deeds that you used to be known for? Remember that? Remember the love that you had for your Savior? The love you had for the salvation of others around you? Remember that. And the whole point of remembering the heights from where you have fallen is so that you might finally open up your eyes to recognize the sad state that you're in. Not so that you can therefore fall further into a state of despair and just beat yourself up over it, but so that you can now get up and turn around and return to your first love. And that leads, of course, to the second charge, the charge to repent. They are to remember And then they are to repent. And to repent, biblically, simply means to turn around. Whatever led you to abandon your first love, turn away from it. Turn away from whatever is stoking your fears, whatever is stirring up your anger towards the larger culture around you, whatever is making you more defensive and less compassionate, turn away from that. If that's what you're watching on TV, if that's what you're reading on your phones or or in the news, whatever it is that's simply just stoking your fears, stirring up anger, turn away from it. Turn away from it. Turn away from the pride that, that makes you more concerned with just being right than to actually being loving, loving your friend, loving your neighbor, especially the ones with whom you might disagree. And the third charge, of course, here is to recover. Jesus says to recover the works you did at first. Now, for the Ephesians, that would mean redoing whatever those good works of love that they were previously known for doing. Go back to doing that again. And for us, what, what that would mean would be to recover and to redo the kind of works that we as a church have engaged in in the past that beautifully displayed loving compassion to our community. And there are tons of examples of things that as a church we have done in our past. I mean, just, you know, for, just consider how for even just the last two years, because of the pandemic, it has significantly disrupted our ministry to the kids and to the families over at Shern Elementary. We haven't completely abandoned ministry there, but of course it has been diminished by a lot of the restrictions. And so we now have an opportunity, a great opportunity to recover and to redo those good works of love that we've been doing over the years. Let's not forget about that. I know many of you have not forgotten, and I want more of you to know the good works that we have done at that elementary school and among those families so that we recover and redo those works again. Or consider, consider how we have been stewarding our building, this facility that God has given us, how we have been stewarding it in the past to serve our community. I mean, we've opened up 
this building for ministries in order to serve families in our community, like our former childcare program that we used to run in this building. And even presently, we use the building to open it up to host outside ministries, like right now, Thursday mornings, hosting community Bible study here in this building. So, no, so as you know, I've been telling you guys, we're going to be rolling out very soon uh, plans for our upcoming building project. I just want you to know that on the forefront of our minds is how we can use any new or any renovated facilities to be a blessing to the community around us, creating new space for recreational ministries, sports ministries that can be opened up to the public, creating more space to host outside ministries, or even perhaps to even host new emerging church plants, giving them a space to gather. Or we batted around ideas like designing space, because right now we don't have any storage space, but if we had more storage space, we could serve as a food pantry for the needy, or as a resource pantry for foster care families. Those are all great ideas that show love and they show compassion to our community. And there are so many ideas like that, so many new and exciting possibilities for serving our community, all because of this this upcoming building project where we get to dream big together. So whatever we build, we want it to reflect well, not just on us, but of course on God and his reputation in the eyes of our community. Now notice Jesus' warning at the end of verse 5. If not, if they don't recover these works, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So if they don't restore love to its central place in the life of their church, if they don't repent and begin to function like a lampstand that bears both light and heat, truth and love, then Jesus warns that he's going to come and he'll remove their lampstand. He's going to exert his right as the Lord of the churches to remove a church. He's done it before. There are plenty of buildings out there that have all the trappings of a church. You might drive by and think it's a church that once shone light, it once emanated heat, but no more. It's not a church anymore. So let's heed this warning. A lampstand that no longer gives off heat, that cannot warm or melt a heart, is a lampstand that will soon be cast aside. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean individual members of a church will lose their salvation. That's not the case. But it does mean that a church's doors could easily close. You can't take that for granted. But Jesus, as Jesus mercifully always does, he leaves us with gospel hope and a promise. So look with me at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because there's hope here. Those who have ears to hear, let us hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying right now. That means if you are feeling convicted, if you are beginning to realize that you have actually abandoned the love you had at first, well, friends, don't shake off that conviction. If, if that's what you're hearing, don't shake it off. If you have an ear to hear, then listen. And listen especially to what Jesus says about the tree of life here at the end of verse 7. To the one who conquers, 
I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now that, of course, is an obvious reference to the tree of life found in Genesis chapter 2, right there in the middle of Eden. It functioned, uh, it's mentioned later on again here at the end of the book of, of Revelation in chapter 22. We're told in chapter 22 of Revelation that this tree of life will show up again. It's going to be located right in the city center of the new city of God that comes down from the heavens onto a new creation, the new Jerusalem. You see, in the first creation, we're told that the way to the tree of life was blocked. Blocked because of Adam's fall. Blocked because of human sin. But in the new creation that is coming, That barrier is gone. How? Because a conqueror called Christ has torn down that barrier through his death and his resurrection. And if you don't know this conqueror, if you don't know Jesus and the love of Jesus, if you never experienced a love for him, then I urge you to come to him today in repentance. Receive him as your Savior. Discover for yourself That in him, you yourself are called a conqueror, more than a conqueror. And you will be granted to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. That, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. And that is the message that we ultimately want to be known for as a church. So let me end by asking the same question I began with. What is our church's reputation? May we be known for a deep love for our Savior, a genuine love for people, and a fiery passion to emanate truth and love as an urban Chinese heritage church here in central Houston. Let's pray. Father, we talk this morning about our church and its reputation because ultimately we care about yours and we want your name to be great to be known as great among all those in our lives. And so we pray that you keep us conscious of how we are being perceived so that we may be faithful as your witnesses, as your ambassadors. And may we recover the love that we had at first. May we recover those deeds of love that emanated from us. May we not grow cold. May we not lose our fire. May you stir us up once again. We pray this all for Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.